written and read by Oliver Gray. Chapter 15. It was like the closing scene of an Agatha Christie novel. Ben had asked everyone to convene in the lounge at Chilbolton Avenue. Robert, Diana, Rosie and her sister Natalie, who was in town for bridesmaid rehearsals. He said he had something to tell them. Ben had had a sleepless night mulling over how to break the news while causing the least damage. In the end, he texted Rosie to say he was coming up to Winchester and wanted to meet her in the flat in Tapping's Road, as he had something he needed to say. As she let herself in, looking no more than mildly intrigued, he was waiting in the kitchen. This is all very mysterious, said Rosie, smiling. She clearly thought he'd had some clever idea to add a novel element to the wedding. Don't say you're calling it off, she laughed. Ben had had plenty of time to prepare his words, but he hadn't expected that question. Well, yes, actually. Rosie's smile waned. What do you mean? I can't marry you. There was a shocked pause. Rosie clearly still wasn't quite sure whether it was some kind of sick wind-up. What do you mean you can't marry me? The wedding's in a couple of days, for goodness sake. I know, but we're going to have to call it off. You can't call it off. Guests are coming from all over the country. Everything is booked. Besides, a more important thought entered her head. Why on earth do you want to call it off? It's difficult to explain, Rosie. I've been thinking about it a lot, and I'm just not ready. I don't want that life. I just don't fit in with your family and your friends. There was quite a long silence as Rosie considered what he had said. I know what it is. It's that bloody pub. Are you going to tell me you've got off with one of those hippie girls from the canal? No, no. Getting out of education and being with more unconventional people is part of it, but there's something else. Rosie still hadn't got really angry, or even accepted what Ben was saying. Look, it's a frightening prospect for any man. You're worried about losing your freedom, I understand that. But you'll soon get used to it. Listen, there are lots of things going on in Dorset that you could get involved in. Organic farming, music, ecological projects. They're all good things. You don't have to go back into teaching. It was a well-meant olive branch, only making what Ben had to say even more difficult. I'm so sorry, Rosie, but there's no easy way to tell you, so I'm just going to say it. I slept with Lucy Cruz, and now she's pregnant. He knew it was a bombshell, but Rosie's reaction was worse than he inspected. You fucking what? Rosie seldom swore, but now she found the ability. You slept with a cow? I can't believe it, you fucking bastard. How could you? You pretend to love me, and all the time you're screwing that whore. Wait till Dad hears about this. How typical that Dad needed to be brought into it straight away. It seemed that Ben could never escape from that man. I'm planning to tell him as soon as possible. I'm accepting responsibility for what happened. I'm very, very sorry, but I've given it a lot of thought, and it's best for everyone if we split up. Best for you, you mean? It was like an unexpected bereavement, as all Rosie's long and short-term plans had turned to dust in the space of a few moments. No wonder she was furious. You complete selfish bastard! It was inevitable that crockery would fly. A mug narrowly missed Ben's head and smashed into the cooker hood. Why did I choose the kitchen? Ben asked himself. Any minute now, she's going to go for the cutlery drawer, and we'll be looking at murder number two. But within a moment, Rosie slumped into a chair 
and laid her head on her hands on the kitchen table, tears of frustration, rage and incomprehension flowing onto her sleeves. Ben was tempted to put his arm round her, but quickly decided it wouldn't be a good move in the circumstances. He waited until she had calmed down a bit, and then told her what he planned to do. I'd like to meet up with your family later tonight when you've had a chance to think about it, and then, of course, I'll go back to the travel lodge and leave you in peace. Rosie looked up. Her smudged mascara and lank, dark hair made her look a bit like Alice Cooper, Ben noticed with discomfort. Isn't there some way we could work something out, make it all go away and start again? A baby isn't going to go away, Rosie. I didn't plan any of this, and I promise I only slept with her the once, but I'm clear in my mind now. I have to be with Lucy, and I have to be with my child, so I'll be going to Texas to see if I can start a new life there. Later, in the house in Chilbolton Avenue, Ben had prepared a little speech. He was pretty sure Rosie would already have told the family, and he was right. As he entered the room, both Rosie and Natalie were red-eyed from crying, while the more controlled adults were clearly steaming with self-righteous rage. Ben had known what Diana's priorities would be, and he was right. We'll have to cancel everything, the ceremony, the reception, the hotel for all the people we've invited. Ben hardly knew any of the people, but had reluctantly come to accept that the entire event was being staged for the benefit of others. What will people say? I know it's embarrassing for you, but it's more than embarrassing, it's devastating. After all we've done for you. Ben didn't really think they'd actually done much for him at all considering the wedding had been so much a case of keeping up appearances. But he kept quiet. Now it was Robert's turn. He'd been waiting, building up to the inevitable outburst. You needn't think you're going to get a reference from me, ever! I don't want a reference. Robert ignored him. And you can expect to be invoiced for all the expense we've gone to. There's a deposit for Lainston House. There's all the champagne. That's non-refundable. My cousins are flying in from Australia. They'll have to cancel their flights. What about the limo we've booked? The list went on and on. That reminded Diana of something. We've even booked a surprise honeymoon for you in the Maldives. What will happen with that? Maybe you two could go. Oh, that's very kind of you, by the way. I'm really sorry. We'll bloody need a holiday after this fiasco, said Robert. Then, almost as an afterthought, I ought to give you a damn good thrashing. It's no more than you deserve. He almost looked as if he might do it, taking one menacing step towards Ben before thinking better of it. There was silence apart from the sobs of Rosie and Natalie. Rosie had had her say, and Natalie was so shocked that she had nothing to contribute. Ben tried to be more pragmatic. We need to take some practical steps right away. There are lots of people we need to inform. Whatever will the vicar say, wailed Diana. I'm more than happy to help in any way I can, offered Ben. Help! Help! Robert was shouting now. We'll take no help from you, young man. Get out of our house and don't come back. We never want to see you again. He advanced towards Ben, grabbed him brusquely by the arm, guided him to the front door, opened it and pushed him out. Ben stumbled on the gravel before raising his hands in a gesture of surrender. OK, if that's what you want, I'm truly sorry. We don't want your apology, you hypocritical bastard. Get out of my sight. The door slammed and Ben found himself wandering down Romsey Road in a daze. In the short term, all he could do was once again get on the phone to the travel lodge. In the longer term, he would have to be back to his parents in Chew Magna for a while. One thing was for sure, the meeting he had just had was proof that he had made the right decision.
Expensive phone calls to America became the norm in the next few weeks, as Ben prepared to head to Austin. His parents, initially surprised, to say the least, had accepted that his move was a good one. He handed in his notice at the narrow boat, reluctantly accepted by Phil Clark, and double-checked the validity of his ESTA entry permit for the USA, something which made everything seem more official. He had to put contact details of where he'd be staying, so entered Lucy's address on the online application form. Bloody hell, he thought. This is really happening. And really happening it was. The fortnight after he should have married Rosie, he could have been on a beach in the Maldives, Ben realised, pretty much his only regret about the entire sequence of events. He was on a flight to Atlanta, from where he would connect on to Austin. He'd left virtually all his possessions in Tatlings Road. All he needed initially was a few clothes, and if bridges were burnt, so be it. This time, the embrace between Lucy and Ben at Austin's Bergstrom airport was much less tentative. Somehow, a bond had grown between the two of them, a bond that had become a lot stronger through Lucy's pregnancy. Ben couldn't believe how things had turned out. The beautiful Lucy had chosen him above all the muscle-bound Texans she could have had. How is this possible? It's your lovely English accent, laughed Lucy, whenever he would ask. Lucy showed Ben the news item she had cut from the Austin American Statesman about the outcome of the trial. A man has been convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of Austin music legend Corey Zander. The ex-leader of the Oklahoma country rock band The Grams had just played his first ever concert in the UK when he is killed in what appears to have been a chance attack after clashing with a drunk man in a pub in England's ancient capital, Winchester. This represents the final episode in the life of a musician whose colleagues claim to be cursed on account of the many misfortunes in his life. A tribute concert to Xander was held at South by Southwest in March, raising money for his educational charity, the Corey Xander Foundation. Xander leaves a daughter, Lucy Cruz, a respected South Austin artist. Ben moves straight into the little house on South Congress with Lucy. There were appointments with the midwife to arrange, many new friends to meet, as well as looking into the practicalities of how he could stay in America long term. The tourist visa allowed him to stay for six months, so a temporary job was an early priority to sort out. Inquiries showed that an eventual attaining of a green card was possible, but would be difficult and complicated. Briefly, they wondered about a marriage of convenience, but quickly decided that would be premature. I hardly know you, smiled Lucy. A job sorted itself out sooner than expected. On Ben's first Thursday in Austin, Lucy wanted to show him an institution of the city, the weekly free live show by Ian McLagan and the Bump Band. Only in Austin could you go and see a musical legend for free in a pub, but McLagan had a special relationship with the city. Originally in the Small Faces, then the Faces and the Rolling Stones, the tiny, white-haired Hammond organist had emigrated to America, ending up in Austin in 1994, where he now was a musical eminence. And every Thursday, he and his band played in a downtown bar called the Lucky Lounge. Lucy seemed to know every musician in town, and it wasn't long before Ben found himself chatting with John Nutter Thomas, the bump band's affable bassist. Extraordinarily, it transpired that Nutter Thomas owned a small chain of hot dog stands going by the groan-worthy name of Best Worst. Before he knew what was happening, Ben found himself agreeing to man one of the stands just near Buffalo Billiards on 6th Street, from where, for the next few weeks, he dispensed chilli dogs to the passing throngs of students every evening until 2am. It was a fabulous job because of the good-natured, laid-back friendliness of the people, such a contrast to the tense aggression 
to be found on UK streets late at night. During the day, Ben helped Lucy out with her various projects. She was preparing for an exhibition of her work to be held in Denton, so there was plenty to do in the way of transporting canvases, handing out flyers and such like. Lucy also told Ben about her current pet project, a tribute CD of Corey Zander songs, to be recorded by Austin musical luminaries and sold in the aid of the Corey Zander Foundation. Ben said he would gladly take on this task and set to work to recruit people. Ramona Cullis kindly let him have the use of a room in the Yard Dog Gallery as an office. Many of the people who'd performed at the gig at the Continental signed up straight away. Alejandro Escovedo's backing band, The Sensitive Boys, agreed to provide any backing tracks needed. To ensure good sales, Ben needed to approach bigger stars as well, so had to deal with some record companies and managers. The goodwill was there, but some of the bigger artists, such as Willie Nelson and Hayes Carl, were hard to get hold of. Eventually, after several months, Ben had got a tentative track listing together. Some artists simply recorded their contributions in their home studios. Others needed financing for studio time, but this seemed to be a worthwhile investment of foundation money, which would eventually bring in revenue. It was hard work and all completely new to Ben, but he loved it because everything about the project was so positive, in stark contrast to recent events in his life. It was only now that Ben realised he'd never really been happy in adult life. Those first few years of initial teaching had been filled with stress and bureaucracy. Then there were the irritating kids, many of them overprotected and spoilt. Pushy parents would complain about absolutely anything, and sometimes the responsibility was overwhelming. On top of that had come the engagement to Rosie. Looking back, he knew that he'd given in to pressure. He was too inexperienced in life to be settling down so early but he had seemed caught up in a flowing tide of conventionality against which he seemed powerless to battle. Most of his old friends from university had settled down in safe jobs and stable, unadventurous relationships, and that just seemed the way things had to be. In a crazy way, he was grateful to Corey Zander for shaking his life up. At least the last six months couldn't have been accused of being boring. But he spent most of the time feeling frightened, unappreciated and under extreme strain. He became aware that here in the Austin sunshine he was waking up without a headache for the first time in years. Much of this was down to Lucy. She simply took everything in her stride. As the bump grew, she blossomed as well, but made no attempt to reduce her level of creative activity, picking away at her guitar whenever she wasn't painting or arranging a show. Plus, the two of them made time to walk hand in hand through Austin's parks, watching the parents with small children they could soon be joining. The tribute CD was finally ready to go. The mixture of tracks was intriguing. An ancient, punky chock song called Ready for Fun was given the cheery western swing makeover by an Austin quartet called the Jitterbug Vipers. The virtuoso Texan guitarist Monty Montgomery did an atmospheric rearrangement of the Graham's signature tune, Desert Grave while some more recent Corey Zander solo songs were covered by Bob Schneider and Sam Baker. Mad and Bad was eventually allocated to Bob Cheebus. By the time he'd finished with it, it had been turned from a rock anthem into a reflective pedal steel guitar-led country ballad that worked just as well. The idea had been for a low-key local launch, but by the time the record was complete, the quality and the lineup was so impressive that Ben was emboldened to try for a major release. He approached a number of labels and eventually settled on Bloodshot, home of John Langford, another UK expat who had chosen Chicago as his place to settle. 
This Chicago label was strong in the alternative rock field and also had connections with the Yard Dog Gallery, so the choice was perfect. Plus, they had worldwide distribution. In that ghoulish and deeply ironic way that characterises an artist who died in unusual or tragic circumstances, interest in Corey Zander was now far greater after his death than it had ever been when he was alive. As Ben was gainfully employed in Austin, he was able, with the help of a few influential friends, to gain sponsorship for a working visa, which made him safe and legal for the foreseeable future. Christmas approached, and with it the prospect of Lucy giving birth. The baby was due in mid-December, and Lucy was determined that it should all be completely natural. She'd been continuing her healthy and active lifestyle and hoped for a home birth. As it turned out, the contractions began late on December the 23rd, and the midwife noticed a couple of things which made her decide to recommend a transfer to hospital. Ben and Lucy agreed that safety was paramount, and the little girl was eventually delivered on Christmas Eve in Austin's St. David's Hospital. Lucy was exhausted and beautiful. Ben was ecstatic. How things had changed in less than a year, and how brilliant everything was. There was much discussion about what to call the baby, with Christmassy names like Holly and Eve being banded around. But eventually Ben's desire for a proper rock and roll name was satisfied. He was after something along the lines of Justin Towns Earl, so they ended up with Alexandra Walker Cruz. That way, if she grew up to be a singer, there'd be no need to invent a stage name. The love Ben felt for his daughter knew no bounds. The feeling of closeness as he strolled the pathways of Zilka Park with little Alexandra strapped to his chest in a sling was like nothing he had ever experienced. Lucy was a perfect mother, conscientiously and successfully breastfeeding her daughter. The album, with cover artwork by Lucy and liner notes by Alan Jones, was eventually launched in March, just a year after the tribute concert. The venue was Waterloo Records, and a good crowd heard an acoustic set by Will Johnson and a duet between Lucy and Ben on harmony vocals on an obscure Chocks demo they'd found on an old cassette. It was a song about Corey's ancestors' heritage, and it was entitled Tears of Dust. Ben was terrified and paralysed by stage fright, especially as some of the audience had tears in their eyes. He was in even more of a state when the time came to him to make a speech, something that Lucy had coerced him into doing. It's hard to believe where I am now, not much more than the years since I was a boring schoolteacher in a boring English town. He gestured towards Alexandra, sleeping peacefully in her buggy alongside the shelves of vinyl. It's a dreadful irony that the person I have to thank for this is Lucy's father, Corey Zander. There was a ripple of applause. Corey died in terrible circumstances. We know all about them, so I won't dwell on it. But every day of my life, I think about the fact that if I hadn't booked Corey to play on that day, he might still be alive today. So Lucy and I wanted to prove that out of bad can come good. Wonderful, generous people have contributed to this great album, and all profits from it will go to the Corey Zander Foundation, helping to educate the children of impoverished musicians, of whom there are plenty in Austin. A rueful laugh of recognition went round the shop. An iced margarita machine had been brought in for the occasion, so Ben asked everyone present to raise their glasses. It's important not to look back. Corey would have wanted us all to have fun today, and that's what we're going to do. Glasses clinked as people lined up at the till to buy the CD. Weeks of discussion hadn't been able to produce a title that everyone agreed on, so it was simply called 
Corey Zander, a tribute. For the first couple of years of young Alexandra's life, they couldn't bring themselves to call her Alex, so settled on Ali, Ben worked full-time running the foundation on his own, distributing funds to those in need and organising exciting events like Easter egg hunts and picnics. He was able to put himself on a small salary, and Lucy's career was going well too. Her creative work was able to fit snugly alongside looking after Ali, and the family moved to a small clapperboard house with a garden in the southern suburbs. When Ali was three, they rented a slipstream campervan and toured America for six months, something they felt they had to do before she reached school age. They couldn't resist visiting some of the places that Corey had been to in his career, like San Francisco and Los Angeles. After some discussion, they decided also to visit Tahlequah to see where his roots had really lain. Sir Lancelot was boarded up, a victim of competition from chains like Wendy's and Taco Bell. Lucy had stayed in touch with the members of the Grams, and they visited Jessie, who had arranged for Mark and Will to come round with their wives, children, and, yes, their grandchildren, for a barbecue in the garden. From those guys, they were able to glean instructions for how to find the woods where Corey had grown up. They parked on the edge of the woods near Wagoner, now designated as a protected area. The trailer had, of course, long since collapsed and been removed. As the weak sunshine glinted between the leaves, making dappled patterns on the ground, they pictured young Alexander toddling around, just as his granddaughter and namesake were obliviously doing now. It was a bittersweet experience, and one which was to have unexpected consequences. Back in Austin, months later, Lucy was messing about with Corey's old acoustic guitar, and came up with a little chorus based on their visit to his woodland home. In the deep dark woods where you came from, we can feel your presence like you've never been gone. She worried that it might seem over-sentimental or maudlin, but ploughed on with the writing until the song was complete, finally doing a rough recording on her home computer. Ben, at work in the office, knew nothing of this until a few days later, when Lucy plucked up courage to play it to him, a solo performance in the kitchen with young Ali on tambourine. As the last chord died away, Ben gasped. Bloody hell. His anglicisms hadn't been fully knocked out of him yet. That's incredible. I think it's a hit, he laughed, doing his best sound cowl impersonation. Ben's immediate instinct was to issue the song as a single in aid of the foundation. Sales of the album had long since peaked and dwindled, and there was a limit to the number of tribute concerts that could be organised. After the Continental Club extravaganza, anything else couldn't help but be an anticlimax. But Bloodshot Records, to whom he sent the demo, was immediately interested, asking whether there were any more where that one had come from. Of course, there were. Over the years, Lucy had accumulated more than a dozen original songs, never intending them to be for public consumption beyond small open mic nights at bars in Texas. It was a good moment to launch a career for Lucy. Childcare could be arranged for Ali, and Ben was able to reduce his hours at the foundation to help out with managing her. The record company put no undue pressure on her, but did come up with a small advance to help finance the recording. Now fully immersed in Austin's artistic and musical scene, Ben was able to put together a dream band to record the ten songs which were eventually selected. On bass and drums, Bobby Daniel and Chris Searles from The Sensitive Boys, and on guitar, Scrappy Judd Newcomb from The Bump Band. Between them, they pushed Lucy to have the courage to project her sweet voice with more confidence than she had ever summoned up before. 
The whole band was recorded live in Lucy and Ben's front room. Even with the blinds drawn, you could still, if you listened intently, hear the birds singing in the trees outside. The album was christened Lucy Cruz in the Deep Dark Woods. From the record company's point of view, it was a dream project. The master tapes were delivered to them complete and ready to press. The songs were highly emotional, not crassly commercial, but accessible and radio-friendly nonetheless. There was an obvious angle to be pursued, with Corey's legend again being used as a hook. As first internet radio came on board, followed by the music press, Filter magazine selected as album of the month. Then country and rock radio nationwide, then your general press, and eventually television. For Ben, the biggest thrill was looking at the tiny print on the CD insert. Tambourine, Ali Walker Cruz. Backing vocals and executive producer, Ben Walker. When the call came for a performance of In the Deep Dark Woods on the David Letterman show, one of the most important angles was that Lucy had stated that she wouldn't be touring. Unlike artists like Alanis Morissette, who opted to take their infants on the tour bus with them, Lucy strongly felt that a quiet and stable upbringing was what was required for Ali. But it didn't particularly matter. Once the nation had heard the song on Coast to Coast TV, the sales momentum took on a life of its own, and the song became a chart hit, ironically getting far higher than any of her father's records ever had. It was five years after Corey's death when Ben, Lucy and Ali headed back to the UK for the first time. With support from Q and Mojo magazines, Lucy's profile in the UK had grown to the extent where she had been offered a solo slot on Later with Jules Holland. She performed the single live, with Jules insisting on adding not very appropriate boogie piano, and the next day they took the train down to Bradford-on-Avon. Ben had made Phil Clark promise not to make a big deal about their secret appearance at the narrowboat, so the only way anyone knew about it was from a small handwritten sign which was put on the window a couple of hours before the show. Word that that girl who'd been on TV the night before would be performing in their local pub spread like wildfire through the small town, and the place was packed as Lucy performed a brief six-song set, and Ben passed a hat round for donations in aid of the Kennet and Avon Canal Restoration Society. The hatchet had long since been buried between Ben and Rosie. When Ali was born, Ben had taken the risk of sending a card to her. He didn't know what the reaction would be, but there was nothing to be lost. In fact, she explained in her reply, it had been only a couple of months before David Watson, one of her colleagues at Pools, had plucked up courage to ask her out, eventually declaring that he had fancied her for years from the next-door desk. Rosie and David had married a year later, with the reception, of course, at Lainston House, so the champagne got used after all. Rosie and Ben came to the civilised conclusion that, as their lives had both moved on, there was nothing to be gained from blanking each other. Rosie now also had a toddler, Jack, but as the children played together in the garden at the back of the black boy, Rosie explained that Robert wouldn't be willing to meet them. He would never get over what he saw as the ultimate betrayal, and would never speak to Ben again. How are things at school? asked Ben. He's not there any more. I've been waiting to tell you in person. It's bad news, I'm afraid. He's had to take early retirement. Blimey, said Ben. Gross misconduct? What's he been up to? Molesting the school secretary? It was an inappropriate piece of attempted levity, as Ben was soon to find out. Actually, it's serious. He's been diagnosed with cancer. Ben blushed, embarrassed at his lack of sensitivity. Shit, 
I'm so sorry, he said. No matter how fractious their relationship had been, he didn't wish anything like that on Robert. Yes, it's a particularly virulent form of pancreatic cancer, I'm afraid. He's having chemo and mum is looking after him, but the doctors are clear that it's only a matter of months. Xander and Oliver's other books are also available in print and Kindle editions. For more information, head to olivergray.com. This audiobook was a DC 10 Tonight production.